This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning, scripture reading is from Psalm 42 and 43. Although they're different chapters in your Bible, they're actually one unified psalm. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I'd go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Thanks. You may be seated. As a good number of you know, we're deep into a series entitled Psalms, Worship in Every Circumstance. The Psalter is God's gift to us. It teaches how to approach God, worship God in any circumstance we may find ourselves in. Last week, I introduced the genre of Psalms of Deliverance, classically known as Psalms of Lament. It's what we do when we're in a low place, but not due to our sin, but due to circumstances out of our control. Now, last week from Psalm 88, we learned to connect and complain and cry out and consider, to connect to our pain and our emotions in the midst of that low. And as we begin to connect to that pain and emotions, let them lead to cogent complaints before God, where we package, you might say, our emotions and our pain to God and beg him to do something about it. And as we complain about those items, we're called to cry out to God, wait on his salvation, wait for him to deliver us and take us home, but as we do that crying out, we're finally to consider, to consider the cultivating work God is doing in our hearts, how he might be using that low place to do something breathtaking 
and beautiful like he did for Herman in Psalm 88. Easy, right? I mean, why do we need another sermon? That's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. Let's wrap it up. Let's go home. But we all know, because we've all been in lows so often, that lows are far more complex and confusing. There's a reason the Psalter is riddled with psalms of deliverance. Listen carefully. Sin may have not put you in your low, but sin can surely find you in your low and be your undoing. Sins didn't put you in a need for a psalms of deliverance, but sins can nail you while you're in that low and take you down. Think about it. In a low, we may become dry and distressed, confused, overwhelmed, apathetic, and restless. We may come under attack from the spiritual enemy. Questions and doubts begin to take shape and form and grow, and unbelief in the goodness and love of God begins to slightly fester in our souls. And emotions may get the best of us, and they all begin to mix together and grow in momentum and take over and form a deadly concoction that spirals out of control, and often they take us down a perilous path. Psalm 42 and 43 help you see that when you're in a low, needing deliverance, you're actually in the battle for the well-being of your soul. And if you're not prepared for that battle or war, if you do not engage well in that battle, you will surely head down a very dangerous and slippery slope. Now, Psalm 88, it gives us that proactive offense to run. But if you're not ready to fight for your soul, you will get distracted and derailed from that beautiful offense and you'll miss out on the deliverance that's yours in the gospel. Now, think back to your World War II history. The U.S., when it engaged in the war of the last World War, it had to fight on four different fronts. It went out west to fight Japan in the Pacific. It went east into Europe, Western Europe, initially to France to fight Germany. It went to Southern Europe and to fight with Italy. And obviously, he went to northern Africa to fight with Rommel and his amazing tank army. In the battle for your soul, Psalm 42, 43, describe and offer solutions for four common fronts you will have to fight in the war for the well-being of your soul. You will become dry and distressed. What will you do? You will be taunted by the enemy. What will you do? You will be ruled by your emotions. What resources do you have? You will be filled with doubt and unbelief. And you need to be prepared for that. So this morning, we're going to cover four things. When dry and distressed, you need to remember. When taunted by the enemy, you need to plead. When ruled by your emotions, interrogate. And when filled with doubt and unbelief, hope. So our first point, when dry and distressed, remember. A mature follower of Jesus in a low may be dry and weary and distressed and overwhelmed, but all that may have absolutely nothing to do with sin. We all have lows and seasons of dryness, but the psalmist refuses to settle for it. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist's soul, the deepest part of them, pants for God, increasingly yearns for God's presence, strains to taste God and his love and grace. So much so that he uses a common simile for his time of a thirsty deer by a flowing river. Look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist makes the simile extremely clear now. He's aching for God's presence. 
We're not exactly sure about the circumstances, but we know that the psalmist, the writer, is cut off from public worship. And this is evidenced by his question in verse 2. The psalmist wants to know when he can literally be seen by the face of God. He's questioning God because he yearns to be with him. He's missing his presence. He's not only dry, but he's distressed. Look at verse 6. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist here is recalling the promised land, his home, the majestic Hermon mountain range, which is 9,000 feet above sea level. And from these glorious mountains, he's recalling the distressing waters of the cascading waterfalls that roar about them, that overwhelm anyone that would dare to get close to them. And then he immediately transitions from one watery judgment image to another as he invokes images of ocean waves and watery judgment, a turbulent ocean that can swallow anyone that would dare swim in them. The psalmist is making a simple point. He's overwhelmed, he's distressed, and his footing is unsure. So what does the psalmist do in his dryness and distress? He remembers. In verse 4, he remembers his past experiences in public worship. In verses 6 and 8, he remembers past experiences of God's presence and love. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers the great festivals, the Passover, first fruits and tabernacles, when he would journey with God's people to God's house, and he just wouldn't travel with his Israelites on pilgrimage to worship. He would lead them. The psalmist had a rich and vibrant and intimate praise life, He loved to shout and sing God's praises. C.S. Lewis, in his musings on the Psalms, talked about how this psalmist and this psalm had an appetite for God. It was carefully cultivated, deep, and expansive. And now in the season of dryness, he could fall back on those dynamic moments of praise. He could recall experiencing God's presence in worship to help his soul, to settle his soul, to refresh his soul, in these protracted seasons of dryness, because for him, they were not an option. But sadly, dryness was not his only woe, so it was distress. Verse 6, I remember you. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Whereas the psalmist needed to remember his past experience in God, when God, of God in worship with his dryness, The psalmist needed to remember God, specifically his steadfast love in his time of distress. The psalmist recalled God's covenant love, God's promise to keep and take care and protect and bless his people. But he's not remembering just the idea or the theology or the language of God's covenant. He's actually remembering God's steadfast love. He's remembering his experience of God's steadfast love. He's remembering the God who loves him. He remembers experiencing God like a love song at night that's constantly a burning reality in his heart. The old-timers, and what I mean by old-timers, guys have been dead a couple hundred years, put it this way. Jonathan Edwards called it experimental religion, a religion that captivated your emotions, your experiences. J.C. Ryle called it vital religion. It's the life of what makes our faith. 
in times of distress. You must fall back on your past experiences of God's covenant love. You must have your soul reconnect with what you used to feast on. Now, the psalmist got a soul to remember what it used to regularly taste. What about you? When you're dry and distressed, what do you make your soul think about? What do you make it remember? How satisfying effective are those places you take your soul? Do you go back to, do you go back to past worship experiences where you tasted God's presence and knew he was good? Do you go back to past prayers, remember him speaking to you, showering you with his very love? The psalmist is a godly man. He has a cultivated worship and prayer life where he regularly meets Jesus. If you're going to win the battle for your soul when you're in a low, then you must be a man or a woman who remembers when dry and distressed. Now, I wish this was the only battlefront we had to fight. I actually think remembering is hard work and might be enough work for us. But our memories are not our worst enemy. We have a spiritual enemy that seeks our harm. And so our second battlefront deals with his assaults. When taunted by the enemy, we must plead. Now the psalmist is low and appropriately, repeatedly connecting to his pains and emotions and he's complaining to God. And he's asking God to intervene in the midst of the oppression of his enemy. And all he's experiencing from his God is silence. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? The psalmist uses a little hyperbole to express the depth of his sorrow. And his enemies see that God is silent and not coming to his aid and they're letting him have it and they're taunting him for it. Look at verse nine. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because the oppression of the enemy As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalm's reflections of God's absence and silence. As he reflects on it, he feels forgotten, literally out of the mind of God. In his mourning of this perplexing situation, he's hurt by God's absence. Why is God not intervening? Why is not God revealing himself to his enemies? And his mourning run deep. It literally says, murder in my bones. He's feeling such an agonizing, deep internal pain. It's undoing him. And then look at 43, verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. You've rejected me. Why do I go mourning? Because the oppression of my enemy. The psalmist has known God as his refuge. And the silence is turning his feelings of being forgotten into feelings of rejection. The absence of God's voice and the antagonism of his enemy is creating chaos for his soul. Now, the psalmist has two enemies in this passage. First, and earthly ones, as verse 1, ungodly people. These are people not in covenant with God and who are taunting him, clear human enemies. Secondly, a spiritual one, this unclear, shadowy person, the deceitful and unjust man, singular. What's shadowy for the psalmist is clear for us. This person is Satan. See, on this side of the cross, on this side of having the New Testament, the canon where God explains his world and our salvation, uh, we see that humans are not our enemy. Although Satan may use humans to taunt God's people, we only have one enemy in the battle. 
Humans who treat us as enemies, Jesus calls us to love them, to seek their good and not their harm. Jesus calls for us to sacrificially, wisely serve them. Satan is our only spiritual enemy and our only true enemy, and he only seeks our harm. Now think about this. When Satan taunts you in your lows, when we're in the pain of our lows and God is silent, what does Satan whisper to you? What questions does he bring to your mind? Here's ones I'm familiar with. Are you sure God loves you? Are you sure he hasn't forgotten about you in this low? Nah, I mean, I wouldn't have left you in this low. Does he really care about you? I mean, if he's so great and good and powerful and all, why hasn't he rescued you yet? And if he's so wonderful, why are you alone and abandoned? Now, the psalmist models for us the way to handle this battle for the well-being of our soul. Look what he does in verse 1 of chapter 43. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Now look at the key words here. Vindicate. Defend. Deliver. On this battlefront, we're not only given instructions to engage Satan, but rather we're instructed to go to God alone. The psalmist, seemingly out of nowhere, suddenly invokes all these technical terms and legal language. He's literally asked God to plead my cause. See, only God alone can defend us. Only God alone can prosecute the enemy. Only God alone can execute the verdict. Think about the word vindicate. It means to clear me justify me, exonerate me. This is what God loves to do because this is what he's already done on our behalf. We have no fighting to do here because Jesus has done all the work. Think about this. Jesus is our perfect advocate, our perfect defense attorney. (laughs) When we were left in our sin and shame, what did he do? He, He came and became a human. He represented us on the cross. He took all the righteous judgment and wrath for our sin and shame. And in its place, he gave us his righteousness, his clothes, his stature, his reputation before the Father. He's given it all to us. And he sealed it with his Holy Spirit. He's right now our advocate before the Father, saying, they're with me. We're brothers and sisters. Enjoy them, Dad. They're yours. Who better to defend us before Satan? Who better to go before Satan and say, what are you doing? They're with me, and I have made them righteous. I have justified them. But Jesus also has the power in the grounds to prosecute Satan. When Jesus conquered sin and death, when he rose again from the dead, he took over the world. He vanquished Satan. He limited his power. Revelation talks about how he's a chained animal in a pit. He can still do harm, but he's limited and he's contained. And Jesus has power over him. And the verdict is already given. His fate is already known. We do know there will be a time where Satan and his allies will be thrown in that great fiery pit where they'll be contained, where they can no longer harm and affect any of God's people. And that time is sure. This is why we're instructed to plead to Jesus when we run to him for deliverance, when we hide again in his love, what might we experience? His beautiful words of grace to our soul. That he's madly in love with us. That he's making all things new. That he's never left us or abandoned us. 
and he's on the move, and he's going to work in that lower end and carry us and take us to different and more beautiful heights. Look, we have two fronts down, but the next battlefront may be the most foreign territory for us. Our third point this morning is one ruled by your emotions, interrogate. Now, what typically happens when we experience a low that needs deliverance? Our emotions typically match our circumstances, right? Now, this is a good thing. I talked about this at length last week. Part of being a healthy human being is connecting to our emotions and the pains associated with our lows. But like the psalmist, our emotions are sometimes not so neutral. They can be infected with fear and doubt and pride. And the next thing, your your emotions can take on a life of their own. They literally take over and sit in the driver's seat, and they can lead us down a very dangerous path. Again, three times in this psalm, the psalmist says this, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist's soul is down. His soul is in turmoil, meaning disturbed, restless, roaring like the noise from the waterfowls of the Hermon Mountains. This part of our soul is not for an activity. We've all seen this way too many times, right? I have to be careful here since I do a lot of this kind of stuff. So no specific examples, but we've seen marriages broken and damaged. We've seen seen children become estranged from their parents. We've seen friends speak no more. We've seen people leave churches, and not because of anything worthwhile or rational or sound, but rather someone's emotions began to drive them in that low place and trump their ability to think soberly and biblically and evaluate their next course of action. And we live in a time where, as it is, motions reign supreme, and when you feel something, it becomes reality. Almost feelings become more important than reality. This past uh, Monday, I was terrified. I had to go to the Orange County Courthouse to serve on a jury. I was in the jury pool. I had a high number, but I got called up fast. And there was only like 18 of us in the room. And the guy, the judge was like, this is going to be a three-day case. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I'm, really, I'm preaching this Sunday. I really can't do this. But then I was kind of captivated by what was happening in the room. It was a slip and fall case. Now, the fault was already determined. All that was going to be decided in this three-day case is how much damages would be given, namely pain and suffering. Now, the moment I said pain and suffering, you can see how subjective this conversation gets. One's emotions and past experiences and views can drive them so much in this conversation. So much so, both lawyers took a combined four hours to screen the jury pool. I was exhausted. But what I found fascinating was what I learned about all of us in the room. Every one of us were totally subjective and tainted. We're all ruled by our emotions in this case. And question after question from these lawyers began to expose how biased and unrational and emotional I was when it came to this situation. And all of this got me thinking, how rarely do we put on our attorney hats and question our own souls? When we're in emotional turmoil, in a low, think about it. When you're in that turmoil, what do we typically do when someone else is in that turmoil? Well, we leave them alone. If they're distressed, we don't argue with them, but we try to pacify them and love on them. We try to validate them a little too much, and we rarely push in, and it's even worse for ourselves. The psalmist does not just question himself. He repeatedly interrogates his soul. 
Do you want to win the battle for your soul's well-being when you're in a low? If you're run over by your emotions, you must interrogate yourself. Make yourself give an account. Scan all your emotions. In the questions and doubts, they express themselves. Look over them. Do they hold water? Do they have weight to them? The psalmist is asking himself for a rationale. Does the disturbance of his soul line up with who God is? Does this turmoil in his soul line up with what has God has done for him? When he looks at that turmoil and that pain, does it line up with what God is doing and what he know God will do? The psalmist is not willing to concede an inch to any irrational emotion in a season of low. He knows how vulnerable he is and how, how dramatic the stakes are. This activity the psalmist calls us to is furiously rational. This front feels like a trench warfare on all fronts. Look, biblical Christianity is extremely hard. But think of the cost of not doing this. It's disaster. Are, are you presently in a low due to circumstances out of your control and not your sin? Is your soul in turmoil? Are your emotions ruling you right now? If so, will you interrogate your soul? Will you make your soul engage the beauty of the gospel? If not, is there someone in your community group that you allow in to help you make your soul give an account? The cost of not doing so is too steep. It's for the well-being of your soul. As we begin to stack these fronts together, I personally found it very overwhelming writing the sermon. I wanted to stop after the first point. When I got to the second, third one, I was angry. And I've had the hardest time writing the sermon because it's largely activity I'm sort of familiar with. And I feel like God's been haunting me all week, going, yeah, buddy, write this passage. Write the sermon. Let's talk about it. And I'm like, God, I don't want to talk about this. Just write the sermon and get done with. And this fourth point, this fourth front, really seals the deal for me. When filled with doubt and unbelief, hope. The psalmist three times interrogates his soul on the heels of these questions. He now gives his soul an order. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times the psalmist commands, exhorts, charges his soul to hope. Now, this is really fascinating. What do you typically do when you're in a low place? I mean, if you're like me, you're struggling to believe the gospel, and you're kind of filled with all sorts of doubts at that moment. We typically allow ourselves to wallow in it. We give ourselves a free pass to do nothing and disengage. We often give too much weight to our unbelief. And then some of us, we find our identity and life in that low place and how poorly we're handling it. But not the psalmist. He literally grabs his soul. He looks at his soul in the face and says, you need to see God. He gives orders because he's not willing to concede an inch. And think about the word hope for a second. It's an expectation of things to come. It's waiting for God to act. It's an expectation of deliverance. Now look at what the psalmist is hoping for in verse 3 and 4. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I'll go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you there with lyre, O God, my God. He's looking forward to going back to the temple. He wants to go to God's holy hill, the dwelling, Jerusalem. 
He can't wait to play his lyre in the festivals again. And he can't wait to go back to the altar of God to offer his sacrifices and worship. This is what he's begging for, pleading for, wanting, expecting God to do for him. But what about us? What do we get to expect and wait on? Not go back to an earthly city in Israel, but to go to a new Jerusalem, a beautiful city, the perfect city, where we'll enjoy God forever where we'll enjoy the greatest of festivals and the greatest of parties, enjoy the choicest of wines and food and fellowship, but not just to an altar, but to free access to the throne of God himself and to enjoy him in everything that he brings. But there's more. Look at the intimacy of the psalmist's language in this psalm. In verse 1, O oh God. In verse 2, living God. In verse 5, 11, and 4 and 5, my God. In those same verses, my salvation. In verse 8, with me. In verse 8, God of my life. In verse 9, God of my rock. In verse 2, God in whom I take refuge. And then again in verse 4, God of my exceeding joy. Who talks to God like this? Do you talk to Jesus this way? Is your language this intimate? Do you even expect to talk to him this way? Why not? Look, in the gospel, sure, we have an amazing salvation, but the ultimate prize is the unfiltered, unadulterated, loving, and perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. So how do we activate and charge our heart to have this hope, to have this intimacy, to enjoy God like this? Ultimately, praise is the weapon. The way God has programmed you to connect your salvation and to your God and enjoy him is praise. This is why we need to praise him every time we can. Celebration of the gospel is our key to hope. Our hearts need to be saturated in who God is for us and what he's done for us. As if our hearts are a little pot and praise is a funnel in which God pours out his love into our hearts that we may enjoy him and celebrate all that he is for us. When I uh, thought about this passage and thought about all the things it calls us to do, again, it's rather overwhelming. When we think about having to remember and plead and interrogate and hope, it's like creating a whole new culture for us to love in when we're in our lows. Let me end with this. A series I've just fallen in love with, and I'm sad that it's over for me, is this uh, uh, show by the Discovery Channel called Surviving the Cut. It's this show that documents all the special forces from all the different branches and all the specialized training it does. So these are men who are on the front lines. These are the greatest warriors in our country in every discipline and field. And if, and if a normal soldier wants to be an elite soldier, he has to have certain qualifications and go through a certain training or boot camp to, to qualify, to be even trained to be an ultimate warrior for our country. One of the groups I was most captivated by was the Air Force Special Operations. These are the guys that go in when a plane just gets shot down, and they find the pilot, they protect him, so they're ultimate warriors, but they're also like doctors. They can, like, treat anything. And so I'm watching these guys get trained, and I was blown away by their skill. But as I started watching documentary after documentary after documentary, I started realizing every training program looks eerily similar to each other. They're all operating off the same game plan. Whether you want to be airborne or marine sniper or a Navy SEAL or Air Force special operations guy, you're doing the same stuff. 
You're already an ultimate warrior, an athlete, when you show up for the training. So it's not your physicalness that gets you cut. It's your mental toughness. All they're doing is just trying to eradicate men who don't think they can do more than they can actually do. And they're trying to eradicate solo types. What they're trying to do is find men who will lean on each other and work together and help each other succeed because those are the only men they want on the front lines of battle. I found that really helpful to me as I think about us. If we're going to have any success in fighting this war for our soul when we're in lows, we have to create culture. We can't do this alone. We have to do this with each other. If we're going to know the love of God and praise him and celebrate the gospel and enjoy his rich mercy and find our home there, if we're going to remember our past experiences of God and plead to Jesus to protect us from Satan and interrogate our souls and hope in the heavens to come, we can't do this alone. We have to learn to do this as a body, as a family. And if we do, we will not concede an inch to the lows we're in but thoroughly enjoy all that Jesus has for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your mercy, your kindness to us in Christ. And we celebrate what you've given us in Christ. He's not just the lover of our souls. He's our king. He's our protector. He's our high priest. He's our advocate. He is the one who pursues us to the ends of the earth. He's the one that holds us safe. He's the one that prays over us, and he's the one that will ultimately make us whole and make the world right. We don't see him enough, Father. Holy Spirit, help us to be a people that create a culture in our lives that finds our home and our souls safety and rest in you. We pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus.